Welcome to the Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. And this is the place for common ground at the intersection of faith, politics, and psychology. And this is the first of two straight shots to the jugular, tribalism itself. These are not just about tribalism in politics, tribalism in evangelical Christianity. We are talking about tribalism as tribalism. Today's part one. In a few weeks, we're going to do part two. That time, we're going to get back to some of the voters we interviewed last season. Some of them also happen to be experts in this area about education and politics and whatnot. But today, we're talking with three true experts. Donna Freitas, you remember her from season two, anxiety and social media episode. She did a lot of research work with college students. Then we'll hear from Michael Blake. He's a philosopher at the University of Washington here in Seattle. And then we will hear some clips from an episode in season one with Christina Cleveland, who is a psychologist and researcher at Duke Divinity School. Ellen, what do you think? Well, I actually remember Donna, so that's one point for me. <laughs> I never remember things from last season. Wow. I don't know what that is. I don't I know. I need some ginkgo biloba. Um, probably, supplements probably Michael aren't is a philosopher of what? A bunch you, of stuff, but he does like international ethics and immigration and... I don't really know what philosophers do. They think about... I, don't, I mean, man, I know what describe, philosophy is and I know... Well, they, they're professors and then they, they write just, and publish. Oh, they just or they, think and write. Well, they and think teach. and write and teach and sometimes they, you know, they'll write interdisciplinarily but with You can't do like people. a lot of things with a philosophy degree. There are not... <laughs> Uh, put it this way. <laughs> when I graduated with a philosophy degree, I uh, the world was not exactly my oyster. Which is why no. you're in the basement doing podcasts on exactly. your own computer. Right. But Michael has figured out how to have a job doing it. And he's a really brilliant guy. But we'll, let's start with Donna. And it's just about five minutes with her here about performance, social media, and her take on the tribalism thing with college students. So like I would say going back for many, many years, one of the things like as a professor, I have made it a point or a priority in my work, regardless of what I'm teaching, you know, to get the students to know that, you know, one of their jobs as a college student is to learn how to be in the presence of difference, like real difference of opinion, you know, and I, I've joked in the past about how like I want you to be able to, you know, sit in the same room with someone who believes something utterly vastly different than you do about a very, you know, difficult issue, like let's say like abortion or, or guns, you know, we're having this intense conversation right now in our, our country about, about guns. I want you to be able to sit in the room who, who with someone who's very, very different than you and, and be able to have a conversation, engage them and not want to punch them in the face. Like, I feel like we need to learn to do that. Tolerance is in that space. It's uh, that's like tolerance is many things, but that's one of the things it is. And you know, you need to uh, tolerate difference, as in difference of opinion, expression, etc. It has gotten more and more difficult for students to, for for any of us, in many ways, to be in those spaces and to to be able to tolerate each other in those differences to the point where even, you know, as a professor now, like with all that's happened in the last couple of years on campuses with speakers and, and I would say censorship or just fears around speech and expression that it makes me nervous to have that goal in my classroom. 
because it, I, I worry that we are becoming scared of difference, I guess, difference of opinions or, or just angry about them. And I do think there is a connection with, I guess I wonder, are we creating this by teaching the young people in our lives that a difference of opinion could lose you your job? <laughs> you know, like we're literally teaching that. Is that, I mean, that's certainly not helping the situation. Yeah. If a difference of opinion could cost you your career, then it's not so crazy to think that these students would elevate speech much higher than it seems like it ought to be elevated. Or even that you would begin to fear <laughs> differences of opinion. Like, you know, that, that there's a way in which on a college campus, you know, differences of opinion are so problematic that we cannot even be in the presence of them, as in we cannot have a certain speaker come and be different among us. And so I feel like that we've been heading in that direction for a while, just because my students are so nervous to express difference. But this is a whole other level of it that I, I could not have envisioned, you know, like five or, or six years ago. One of the most interesting ways that I've heard people talk about the campus speech issue and, and even some other issues like the Trump presidency is to actually think of it in terms of what Jonathan Haidt would call the moral foundation of purity or cleanliness, and to think of these invading or unwelcome opinions as like defilement, sort of almost like a prehistoric society would think of getting boils or, or being near a woman's menstruation, like these, these sort of very deep down kind of built-in human, the, the emotion of disgust. And it strikes me that if you're afraid of being associated with something that could cost you down the line, then that would lead into other types of fear of association. And that might be a good prism through looking at some of these speech campus issues of like, it isn't so much that we disagree with the speaker. It's like, I can't be defiled by that. I don't even want to be associated with that. Not that they'd be thinking, oh, it's because of a job, but they may be trained to think that way through their counselors, through their parents, through their teachers who are preparing them for this new world. Social media, everything that's going up online, it's, it's a performance. So we are, you know, we are performing a certain persona and it is being broadcast, literally, you know, and, and captured. And I wonder if, you know, we, we are learning to perform in a certain way, given the cultural conversation that's happening. And I, I wonder how much there's a, a vicious circle there. I think there's a way in which we're learning what it means to perform as a liberal or as a conservative or as a Democrat or as a Republican, like how you craft that persona, kind of like how you craft your, your profile. And I think the fact that everything is so public it is so, so public. I think it makes it more difficult to, to be nuanced in many ways or to sort of have those complicated conversations. It doesn't seem that we're having complicated conversations online. I think those happen in person. It's funny because there are certain things that I would just never dare say online anymore. What do you think about performance, sort of 
everything online being public? Well, I think it stems from the idea that we only show what we want to be seen and we assume that what everyone else says is, you know, sums them up. Yeah, we we have a little double move where we know that we're only putting certain things out there, but we don't necessarily always do a good job of understanding that that's what our friends are doing. So we just see their vacation photos and like the fun stuff they're doing and... They must when be they're so all made rich, up, not in debt. Right, but like we all, we don't even make that mental move of like, oh, but I only post my best stuff. Yeah. You know? I was doodling while she was speaking, and I wrote, tolerance is engaging without raging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is, I almost just that, spit out my beer. Is there is there something to that? Did I, got, did I get something there? Engaging without raging. That's good. Yeah. yeah, if you can engage with someone without wanting to punch them in the face. That's the goal, Ellen. I think that's what we're that's all after. That's a good project. Pro- yeah. Pro- engage... Without rage. What would you call engaging with the rage to lower the rage? What would that whoa, be? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Engage the rage, Ellen. <laughs> that's like a, oh, that's that's like fitness. That's yeah, like that Whole30, like P90X. Come on, seven, eight, engage the rage, Ellen. Nine, <laughs> one more, engage that rage. I'm not connecting with this at all because I don't exercise, but I see where you're going with that. I've been on a diet for two and a half months. I have gone to the gym have one you time. Raged? What, did you rage? No, it was a medium. You was a medium on workout. the treadmill. <laughs> I walked uphill on the treadmill. That's what I do. Oh, you eat that uphill? That's, That's pretty good. That's uphill. What did you think about the, I was parroting it. I didn't make it up, but this idea that for the left, Trump especially is like an impurity. He's like, I've read it. I read it described as like, he is like the whore of Babylon in the temple. He's the so abomination biblical. of desolation. He's just like destroying norms left and right, and he's so gross to people. Yeah. And if you're, gr- and if he's gross, then there's no reasoning. You don't really care if, like, if you are like a Republican leaning person, then you can point to a whole lot of things that you like that Trump has done. Deregulation. You might like Betsy DeVos and schools. You might like. I don't know, a lot of military stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of things you might like. My dad loves his 401k now. Right, although actually the market's back down. But still. Now he has nothing. (laughs) He's down to rubble. Cool. But I mean, the point is that if you are disgusted by something, then you can't see any merits of it. And this is something I've recognized in myself. Like, I I find myself disgusted by Trump. It's visceral for me. And I have to check myself with that. And I have to understand that not everybody is disgusted by him. And there might be things that ought to disgust me. I think, for instance, his misogyny and racism ought to disgust that me. That you don't? You just love it? No, I am disgusted oh, and okay. I ought to be disgusted. <laughs> but the president of the United States just does so much more than tweet, right? Yes. I mean, like, so if I let that disgust rule, then I'm actually not, I'm not engaging accurately with the world as At it all. is. I bet, I bet you, and you know how I feel about Donald Trump, but I... I bet you anything, if you were to spend the day with him and he knew nothing about you Mm -hmm. and he didn't know that you were like, you know, against pretty much everything that comes out of his mouth. I campaigned. I started a podcast in order to help defeat him. And if you just kind of hung out with him, maybe watched some TV, had some lunch, I bet you wouldn't hate him. 
You know, I bet that just engaging on guy. a human to human level, I, I I guarantee you that it might change the way that you think about him. Now, when you went home, you would still say, well, I still disagree with everything, but now I think he's a little less gross. I don't, I mean, it's hard with all the power. I don't know. I'll I know, tell you this. what I'm saying is- I could bro down with George W. Bush. Well, sure. I could love hanging love with that, that guy. guy. I know that's true. I'm not but totally sure if it's true I guess what I'm Trump. challenging you on is we don't know him alone. Yeah, people have said this. And, you know, reporters and other celebrities who know him have said, look, he isn't exactly like the public persona that he curates. It's it's an entertainer. I get he's it. He's a showman. Sure, and I'm sure. And he's unfortunately really kind of brilliant at it. Yes, but he I, is. But I yeah. really believe that. And, and I'm saying this to be hopeful and to hope that I actually do believe this. Yeah. I believe that if I sat down with him and got to actually talk with him for an hour, I would probably walk away feeling differently than I do now. And I would hope someone would give me the chance to say the same. I sure. always – I think on a human level – we do, at the end of the day, have to admit at least that all we know about him is what he puts forward, which is terrible. I mean, I really A lot don't, of it is terrible, yeah. Yeah. But I think we're so quick to just assume that he on the inside is garbage. Well, there's – yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at is like I think a lot of what his presidency stands for – is just fine. It's like regular sort of Republican stuff. And right. I maybe I disagree with some, I agree with some. Some of but some of the other stuff his presidency clearly stands for is like a fear of the other, a right. stoking of fear about immigrants and nationalism. You know, I, I really find that stuff pretty gross. And it's very hard to disconnect that. But as a person, you know, he's a person who happened to become president. Yeah, as a person I'm sure we could I can find something to like about him. The lesson there is probably Less about Trump himself and more about even his most ardent supporter. If yes. you scratch the surface long enough and you ask enough questions, you're going to figure out something about why they love him so much. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find some common ground. Now, you don't have to do that all day long, but it's good to know that you would if you did do it. And it is good to do that with people that you have some other reason to love. Family members, people you work with, yeah. you know, et cetera. I just think for me, it kind of really relieves some of the political stress. If, you know, if all I can do is vote and participate right. and I've done those things and I still have to turn off the radio every time I hear his voice, yeah, then I have to do some work with me, not because it's important that I think that he's a great guy, but because I need to understand that he's a, a human and he's a man and he's Created a father and he's a son. Yep. And that I need to just sort of like let that go. I couldn't agree more. And that's the first time we'll end talking about Donald Trump on a positive note, maybe ever, but we're going to do that. And let's move on to the next uh, guest. So this is Michael Blake, University of Washington here in Seattle. We jump around a little bit topically, but everything is sort of centered around this issue of tribalism as it manifests itself today. We are doing this interview on a college campus, and these days, that impulse of my way or burn it down, at least on the left, is probably most publicly shown on college campuses these days. Do you feel that here? Do you worry about that? It is in my mind. 
I know people at universities that aren't that far from here who have had people picket their classes. I've seen the ACLU, an organization which, if anything, is a fairly standard liberal organization pushing back against certain kinds of right-wing policy, that they get picketed. The worry I have fundamentally is that the people who are doing this are viewing politics as something akin to warfare. It doesn't matter how you get to the end point so long as the other party stops, so long as the other party is dead. And here, of course, the death isn't literal, but it means they want people to stop speaking. They want people to stop offering reasons because there is something immoral or unjust about the reasons that are being given. I sympathize sometimes with those students among this group who say we don't want to constantly have to put up with homophobes or put up with Milo coming and making fun of trans people. We're sick of it. And I can understand that. But for me, once you start saying, I'm sick of you and I'm going to stop your speech, that ends poorly. And it ends poorly in particular because it's generally a mistake to give tools to the powerful when you yourself are not that powerful. One of the great ironies of, of um, hate speech codes on college campuses, uh, which were predominant in the 1980s and may or may not be making a comeback now, is that they were often used against black students. They were often used against marginal students more than they were against the white privileged kids who were their ostensible target. And it's because once you pass a law, it gets used by people who are powerful. And you can count on those people using it in ways that you hadn't intended. So when those students are shutting down conversations on campus, even if I agree with them that Milo Yiannopoulos has nothing to say that's worth listening to, the fact that they're stopping him from speaking inevitably makes both the dialogue more impoverished, but it comes back to bite them in the ass too. Oh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just red meat for his crew. And it's more reason for the alt-right to be able to say, well, look, we have the moral high ground here. And that's sort of the last thing you want to grant them. Oh, yeah. They have the moral high ground and they also get to portray themselves as the inheritors of reason and debate. Yeah. And that's not something that they're entitled to. I like reason and debate. It's kind of what I want to do as a profession. And I like it when people disagree with me. But increasingly, I worry that that entire enterprise is under threat. One of the things that is needed to run a country in the long term is the will to lose. Because if you value the existence of this country more than being in charge of the country, then when you lose an election, you say... Uh, well, you know, I'll get them next time or I'll, I'll phrase it differently or we just got beat or then you continue to do the small things that show you are in the old British parliamentary words, the loyal opposition. You're there in your role to say what's wrong with the government, but you await your turn in power with quiet equanimity. Someone who says that the other party is a threat to America, they have not identified with the ongoing debate. They've identified with one side in it and the opposition isn't the loyal opposition. They are demons in human form. And you can't run a country like that in the long run because you won't give over power. You won't accept contrary information. And you'll do all these small things that make it harder for us to see each other as fellow citizens rather than simply as enemies. You talked about the will to lose being kind of this civil necessity in a democratic or a parliamentary system. 
do you see any lack of the will to lose graciously on the left these days, either among leadership or average voters? I see some evidence of it fraying across the board, unfortunately. I, I think the examples from Trump are more striking because he won and his verbiage tends to be more soundbite uh, friendly. And yeah. so the examples I use often come from him. But I also notice that in my neighborhood, there's a lot of Bernie voters who have never Hillary bumper stickers. And I don't like those people right now. And it's not because I have any particular love for any politician at this point, quite frankly, but more the sorts of ideological purity that say, I won't compromise. The other side is wrong. If you voted for Hillary and not for Bernie, you're as bad as someone who voted for the devil himself. All of this makes politics this zero-sum game between the chosen and the damned. And it's this kind of pathology that is all over the spectrum right now. All the stuff that's coming out about the Democratic Party and their treatment of Bernie versus Hillary, it all shows that well, what we all suspected, which is that it's not entirely above board in any party, that that's true. But I really don't like the sense of purity that says, if I can't have my first order preference for who and what gets done, I will burn this place to the ground. That impulse is an impulse that never ends well for anyone on either side of the spectrum. One very powerful force is, it's called in psychology, the contact hypothesis. Once you actually get to know a specific example of a group, your attitude towards that group as a whole tends to change. I'll say this in two ways for the two halves of the audience. Um, for the conservatives, it turns out that having a gay neighbor tends to alter the views towards homosexuality. Once you learn that your neighbor is mowing their lawn and showing up at the block party. They're not actually satanic. They're just dull like you are. That tends to change your attitude. And in a subtly different way, one of the pathologies for academics like me is that too many of us are upper middle class white people who vote democratic and live in cities, and we never really meet Trump voters. And the result is that there's this temptation to think that Trump Trump voters are dumb. And of course they're not. They're not dumb. They're smart people who believe different things than I do. But I'm not even confident of the things I believe. Why should I think bad of those people who disagree with me? That's why, in an odd way, I wish that the academic world had more willingness to push for conservative viewpoints. Even though I often think they're wrong, I think they are necessary for a conversation to actually get closer to the truth. It's just an unfortunate world that we're in where our ability to live up to what I think the better angels of our nature would tell us to do has started to really fray. Where do you see that fraying of conscience on the left? Well, I think there's a variety of ways in which it's been fraying. One of them has been a very odd fraying of the relationship between the working poor and the left, mm. in which the left, I think, has failed to notice that people who are less urban, less educated than often the spokespeople, the self-appointed spokespeople of the left, that they're actually suffering. I've spoken not to as many Trump supporters as you have, but to some. And one of the things that I've heard has been that they are not naturally conservative, but that Trump was one of the first people to even talk about how much the absence of manufacturing has hurt. Whereas people on the left... And look, I count myself as being, broadly speaking, on the left. 
we got to enjoy hectoring people for not using the right language over gender, and we got to have ever-increasing tests of ideological purity for the latest social theory, and we really failed to live up to our duty to acknowledge the very great many ways in which people who weren't like us were suffering because of global economic supply change issues. Ellen, I have very little to add because I just think that Michael just said in like eight minutes, like he just basically gave a homily. That was like yeah, that was so great. much good stuff. I mean, I'll just list some things that I loved. The idea of politics as warfare. I found the idea of like being careful what law you pass because powerful people will use it against unpowerful people. Really yeah. interesting. Uh, willingness to lose. I'm so sad about that these days. I just feel like there's really no place for someone who thinks that their party should be willing to lose in 2018. And I'm just kind of waiting until there is a place. And then conservative viewpoints in the academy. I mean, that's something that Jonathan Haidt is working on with Heterodox Academy. And I think it's great. But I just, I don't know. We, let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. Because I just was like, oh, I'm just going to repeat him. I mean, I was same with you. I just, it's like when he talked about how people do whatever it takes to win as long as the other side stops. That makes yeah. people, that turns people into animals. Yep. And I love that he said he just does not like those people who have those signs or bumpers yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But it got me thinking also about those people who, you know, hashtag not my president, mm-hmm. which yeah. is like, I get that. But I think that these ideas are all intended to be really progressive and progressives kind of wave this flag of like compassion and this never Hillary, never Trump, not my president, sort of like unwillingness, this heels in the ground attitude, I think is really doing a disservice to themselves by being unwilling. And when you're unwilling to change, you're not going to move any mountains. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something that I've been hearing a few other people talk about recently that I found really interesting. One of them was Scott Jones on the Give and Take podcast that like, it used to be that conservatives were the Puritans. They were the ones who said, look, it doesn't matter if Bill Clinton gets the economy right. Like he had sex with a woman and lied about it in the Oval Office and that's impure and he's disqualified. And it's now shifted to where Republicans, the conservatives will be like, well, Trump's getting our agenda done. He's obviously an awful guy. But he's a good politician and we're fine with it. And on the left, it's like, you use the wrong pronoun, you're out. Like, yeah, it's wild, isn't or, it You wild? know, or Al Franken, I like, was... got, left the Senate for doing something much less than yeah. Trump and Roy Moore and all these people have been very yeah, credibly yeah. accused of doing. So it's, it's weird that the puritanical thing has shifted. And now there's this purity culture on the left that will tolerate no deviance. And so he talks about, like, we got to ridicule the right for their backwardness. That, and That's so fascinating to me. When we were, uh, I think it was this last season when we were talking about how uh, not that long ago most Democrats were pro-life. Pro-life was was more of a progressive democratic thing. Maybe like before the 70s sh- or something. Uh, well, no, it was like, it wasn't until like 1980, late 80s or something. It hmm. really shifted. Yeah. And so it's just so, after learning that, it kind of made me look at issues differently because we all know they're not black and white and we know that they, you know, 
every Democrat or Republican believes a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's just so weird to see these like huge shifts. Mm-hmm. It's like tectonic plague. Why do I do this every episode? It's not I the bubonic say plague. Tectonic <laughs> plates. Tectonic. Yeah. I say tectonic. Tectonic. Tectonic plates. Yeah. Anyway, it's wild. I wish the left wasn't so. I would go full blown to the left if the left wasn't so elite and pretentious about everything. Yeah. And uh, I agree yeah. with, I would say in my beliefs, I'm pretty much all the way there. I just still can't identify because just like a lot of people th- assume that conservatives, Republicans are dumb. I think that when the Republicans call the left elite and pretentious, I think they're spot on. Well, there are elites actually Except on the, both sides, but certainly sure, there is a pretension but this to the left. Like we are better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. We are better. And it is just the same as the conservative evangelical Republicans who believe that they are morally better yeah. than the left. There's no difference to me than the left thinking that they are more intelligent. That's uh, that's their morality. I, I think that yeah. in, I think that intellectuals see intelligence as a type of like their morality. Hmm. I would love to see like a Democratic Party platform in 2020 that was like, we don't care which pronouns you use, where you live, if you like driving trucks or Priuses. We want everyone to have health care. We want an infrastructure program that hires poor people out Are of work. Are you running for office? No. <laughs> but like if if we could see something like that, that's something I could get behind. I would be so happy to be a part of that. But if it's if it's just like posturing and like, you know, with the Kavanaugh thing, that was really hurtful for a lot of people. And, you know, obviously that issue is one where people have really deep trauma. Just from an optics politics perspective, I found nothing that almost any senator on either side said to be helpful at all. It was like the Republicans and the Democrats are all posturing. They're giving their little sort of pre-presidential bid speech. They're yeah. riling up the base. They're using the code words. And I'm just, I can't keep behind that. one thing I did uh, appreciate about, what what's her name? The Republican that held out and made the whole speech. Yeah. Susan Collins. Susan Collins. Maine. Yeah. The one thing I did really appreciate that she said that I hope does not get forgotten is when she was talking about the document that Dr. Ford did not want released that got released. Yeah. And she was, you know, talking about like how horrible this was that it got leaked. I did love and appreciate that she pointed out like if you actually cared about this woman and if you cared about what she had actually been through, you would have not released that document. It seemed to me like she really meant that and I'm so and I hope victims heard that and I I hope that Dr. Ford felt validated about that. Not that it really yeah, means I mean, much, but maybe. Well, but you said know. that you didn't hear anything. So I Well, I, even I then, that's like a that, way that's the that was the official line for Republican senators was that look, no matter what happened, obviously the Democrats were really cynical in how they used this politically. That was their yeah. official stance. And it's true. It's which true. is the one thing that I agree with on there. I think everybody forgot yeah. she was a human, and which is why that yeah. thing was so terrible. Ellen, what has been your favorite patron-only episode? Uh, I haven't listened to any of them, so <laughs> I would say the third one. <laughs> yeah, the third you, one Dan? is real good. What was your favorite to record? Oh, man. Um 
Well, I thought that the one from a few weeks ago with Sarah and Tyson was fun just because it was like a three-person conversation. Who's and Tyson from... Tyson Motzenbacher, the musician, and our, our friend Sarah, who's a okay, musician and I'm, a teacher. I'm so sad people can't see you right now because you just held your hands up so high to slap that bass. It I was like not you slapping like, the bass. Yes, I just was... Were. I move my arms around when I talk. I don't know. It's I know, a, but you looked like... Uh, Tyson, you know the uh, Tyson. Speaking of which, I have been binging Seinfeld. Oh, yeah? And I would encourage everyone get back into that first and second season. Some of the greatest. Some people say not not so good first season. You disagree? I think it's all good. Okay. Some of my favorite episodes are in the first three seasons. Hmm. Okay. Well, for instance, talking with Tyson and Sarah, I combined two conversations I was going to have with each of them, and then we did it together. Which was fun, and then I don't know. I've, I've I've really liked doing all of them. I'm actually, it's kind of one of those things where you think, well, I wanted to like sort of bring something of actual value to people if I was going to ask them to pay money. So it's definitely more work, you know. It's doing extra episodes, but it's cool. I really like that I can talk about anything with people because it's what is... it's not just themed to the show or whatever. What is the one thing you're really glad that you got to talk about now that you're doing these super secret episodes? Super secret fancy episodes. The one you thing I'm really... Do that. <laughs> I can't wait for another one of those episodes. That's coming up soon. We're going to have Keith Ward to do science. Uh, what's something I'm really glad I got to talk about? Well, I, I will say that the Sarah and Tyson one because, you know, we asked her a lot about sort of sexism in touring industry. And I've toured with Sarah more than once. Tyson and I have toured together. We are touring again in a couple weeks. And that's good. Like, that's just good for me to hear. It's good to hear a female's perspective on something. And I have enough distance from it now. I haven't really toured. I haven't toured all year since 2010. So when I used to, I used to play 150 shows a year. So I thought, I really liked that. I was really glad to have that conversation. Tour life is really something. It really is, man. I mean, I miss it, but I only really want to do it like a week or two The a last year. time I was out, was a like a three week run, and the van's air conditioning was broken. It was August, and we were going through the South. And I remember being like driving through the fields in Oklahoma, and we all we'd stop at every gas station and get ice, and we would just pack our our clothes full of oh ice. Oh my and gosh! We just prayed. I cannot imagine <laughs> that. This is before you had Phoebe. Yes. Yeah. Oh God, I would have never have gone with her nor pregnant. Oh my gosh. So your yeah, your your husband Cole is in, plays drums in Ivan and Alyosha Seattle rock band. But We'd, it was yeah. so much fun just doing whatever we wanted. Yeah, tour. I, it's I, fun. I There's think a fun about, part. Yeah. I before I had a kid, I thought, ugh, never doing that again. And then now that I have a kid and I can't go anywhere or do anything, I think, oh, what I wouldn't give to just drive through the night and eat gas station food for three days. Yeah. Anytime I take your someone to the airport, like oh yeah, you miss oh, beef that, jerky no, so much. It's like an excuse to do that stuff. When I take someone to the airport, I'm, there's always a part of me that's like, I wish I was traveling. I wish yeah. I was going away. Yeah, yeah. So I am actually really looking forward to that. Uh, going to be on the BC Road Show, which I'm not sure which date this is coming out, but I think it's coming out before that. BCRoadShow.com. I'll be out there. In more of a podcast, Dan will be out there facilitator toot, form, his horn. tooting my own horn, answering toot, questions toot. that other people ask me. Uh, well, this was an ad for the Patreon. This was an ad. <laughs> yeah, that was an ad. Oh, this could have been an episode. So, Patreon.com/slash depolarized. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. There's a link in the show notes. Three bucks a month starts at, 
and it's a way to support the podcast work that Ellen and I do. And, and I'm other working on some Patron Saints merch. Patreon Saints merch to, to TBD, but eventually. And uh, it helps. And I, I just try and provide something valuable for it. Like because my I don't, $5 wine that he gives me when we record. That's what your money is going towards. That's true, yeah. We we, we, we drop down to the organic hey, Charles Shaw. you know Shaw. what I should do is I should do a wine review. Every time we do an episode, because I drink a different wine, mm-hmm. I should do a review. Maybe we'll put it with the bloopers at the end. Okay. Did people? Did you guys know there's bloopers at the end? If you didn't know that, there's bloopers at the end of every episode also, with Ellen. Dan thinks they're funny. I think they're really funny. So just know that I didn't pick them out. You know what? This would be a good time since a lot of people are skipping this for me to (laughs) just, I just want to thank you or I want to give you props in the Karen Swallow Pryor episode. You only want to say this because no one. You dropped the funniest joke and I I didn't hear it while we were recording because I was talking over you, of course. But you heard it when you you said, I'm not. Yeah. When I listened back, I heard it. You said, I'm not just throwing around hashtags willy nilly, hashtag willy nilly. See, now I don't think that's funny. That's so funny. That's really funny. Oh, okay. All I'm right. glad that you think I'm funny. End of Patreon ad. Thank you guys for your support. Really appreciate it. And send me some ideas. Thanks for hanging in there, folks. <laughs> if you made it this far. Oh, my God. Tap twice. So our third and final interview that we'll hear today this is one of my favorite episodes from season one. I just took some clips from it that related directly to the tribalism question. This is with a psychologist and researcher and author, Christina Cleveland from Duke Divinity School. And I mean, I, I recommend listening to the whole episode as episode 18 of season one, but here are some clips. And Ellen, you know, you weren't on the show at that time, so we never had a chance to sort of talk about what she said. So I'm looking forward to debriefing with you. After we hear these clips, any questions about her before we have get going? Have you copyrighted D? Because every time you say a word that starts with D, like debrief, you have this little <laughs> twinkle about you. Like you, you coin oh my the gosh. whole term D. That's, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's uh, Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, here's Christina. Another way of thinking about a resource is who gets to control the culture. It's very competitive around that because really only one group can control a culture, can dominate a culture. And for so long in the United States, sort of white Western European culture was the dominant culture. And now with the increase in not only immigration, but also the birth rates among brown and black Americans far exceeds those of white Americans. And so we're seeing diminishing impact or uh, dominance of that white sort of Western European culture. And that's seen as a resource scarcity problem as well. There's conflict, there's competition over whose America is it really? Who belongs here? Who, who should have the most influence in the culture? Um, and I mean, on, on one level, you know, I think there's an explanation for it. I was born in 1980 and a study was conducted from 1980 to, to 2010 that looked at how the U.S. was changing in terms of racial ethnic demographics. And in 1980, two thirds of all spaces in the United States were all white spaces. And so they defined all white spaces as a white person can essentially go about their entire day, their entire life, work, school, education, you know, church, everything, and never really encounter a person of color. 
And then by 2010, when I turned 30, that had been reduced to one third of all spaces. And so there is really this shift in sort of cultural dominance or cultural influence that people can perceive as, you know, a scarcity problem. And then, of course, immigration would be at least partially blamed for that by some people. Yeah, it would actually be illogical to not link that to immigration if it was about people of color in your space. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's totally unconscious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some really interesting social psych research also shows that we tend to uh, not have a problem with immigrants as long as they don't challenge our cultural customs. And so um, that helps to explain why, you know, someone from Sweden who already knows English and barely has an accent, if anything, their accent is seen as exotic and interesting, isn't really going to be someone that people are concerned about versus someone who has different food, has different language, looks different, etc. Yeah, I think of like British friends, you know, it's like, if anything, it's just like 10 points for your British accent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So much of the culture is shared. Yeah. I have a friend who's British who came to the United States as a child undocumented. And talks a lot about how nobody ever questioned whether she was here like legally or not. And actually, when her mom, who brought her here to the United States, applied for social services for them, it was revealed that she was not, in fact, a U.S. citizen and did not have a green card. And the immigration officer said, yeah, your daughter actually needs to go back to England and like actually immigrate here legally. My friend was like eight years old at the time or something. And she says she remembers her mom telling the immigration officer over my dead body. Is that happening? You need to just like expedite her right here on U.S. soil. She is not leaving me. And he just acquiesced. And it's just interesting to, to imagine how that would play out, you know, if this were a brown woman who spoke Spanish or, you know. <laughs> I mean, you, you basically cannot imagine that happening for an immigrant of color. Uh-uh. No. You know, these biases are things that we all have. And it's not just white people who have these biases. It's not just uh, rich people who have these biases or, you know, just college educated people. We have developed higher order cognitive processing. And the only reason of bringing up these biases is to raise them into conscious awareness because we actually have a prefrontal cortex that is capable of overriding them if we are aware of them. And so it's really an opportunity for us to say, hey, I do this, you do this, everybody does this. And if we continue going on autopilot using, you know, just simply relying on our amygdala, our hypothalamus, you know, just only being driven by some of our more primitive aspects of the brain, which actually are helpful, but they're really helpful for like fight or flight. (laughs) They're not really helpful for uh, distinguishing very minute differences that can actually be the difference between someone's life or not, um, which we see a lot in the criminal justice system, where the number one factor of whether you end up on death row is your race, not the actual crime, not your education level, not your class. It's just race. And so at this point, it is like a life or death situation. You know, are we simply going to rely on these kind of lower order cognitive processes or are we going to bring them into awareness so that we can use the processes that we've developed as human beings to override them? So certainly, you know, we start by saying, yes, I'm aware I'm biased towards, you know, people who are more symmetrical or not, or I'm biased towards people who are tall and thin or, or not. And then beyond that, we need to also start asking the questions like, well, you know, what are the structures that create the environment where these biases flourish, too? And again, we can't even begin that process if we don't just recognize that 
it is that it is a problem. Yeah. I think the danger of a conversation like this is that people will walk away and say, well, I'm a little bit biased and you're a little bit biased and we're all a little bit biased. And, you know, um, so then it's like, well, if the homeless person on the street is a little bit biased towards me, my bias towards that person is way more hurtful (laughs) because I have power, right? I have power. I think another challenge to this this conversation, or at least the way that we had it today, is that it could easily lead people to think that they don't have a responsibility to make things right. We sort of inherited this mess. Some of it's evolutionary. Some of it's the way that I was socialized in my home. Therefore, you know, it's not really my responsibility. And I can just, yeah, I can just like send snarky tweets and I can, you know, whatever, laugh at my jokes from my comedians and I'm good because what am I going to do? Part of the reasons why it's really interesting for me to be in a divinity school and in this case, a Christian one is because it's chilling, but also exciting to think about the discrepancy between what many Christians claim to believe and the way many Christians live their lives. That's, that's the chilling part. But the exciting part is starting to make some of those connections and invite people into really interrogating their faith versus their actions. And I mean, I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to reckon with all the us versus them, the groupishness, the the clean versus unclean, the valuable versus invaluable, the even the even social geography of our world. Because, you know, most Christians would agree that Jesus came to, in at least in part, address some of those differences simply by the way that he lived his life to say nothing of some of his sermons, like, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and the parables that he shared where he's clearly challenging people's notions of what's right and wrong, who's in and who's out, who's clean and who's not clean. But simply, you know, Jesus's life of pretty much exclusively hanging out with people that most Christians wouldn't even bother to talk to (laughs) really challenges some of these notions. And so, you know, it is interesting to think about you know, a lot of Christians like to, particularly Western Christians who are pretty like individualistic and think very linearly about their faith, would like to believe that everything about their life is a direct, <laughs> is a sort of direct fallout or connection to their faith. So I think it is helpful when we start to look at, well, what's what's going on in our brain? What's going on in our evolutionary sort of DNA, social DNA? What's going on outside of our conscious awareness? And talk about that in the context of, you know, evil or brokenness or sin or something like that. And then talk about what would redemption look like? And then what, what might it cost me to participate in that? You can work this out in a way, in the way that Paul would talk about working out your salvation, right? You can work this out it might be arduous, it might be painful, it might be uncomfortable, but we also claim to follow a leader who went down a similar path that led to the cross. And so there's a lot to mine there theologically if we're willing to do that. I feel like the more I learn about my brain and the way that I've been socialized and how I'm going to by default do things as opposed to how I think things should be, I feel like the more that that happens, it's a call out of a naive faith into, I have to be willing to be broken apart, experience a lot of mental suffering and probably some physical suffering. And then through that, actually, I will see a world that's much more beautiful. And and I, I think Jesus saying you have to lose your life to gain it. 
uh, and the mustard seed being broken open into, you know, becoming a giant plant. Those are two really good like analogies for that. So that's me answering my question to you. <laughs> I'm a great interviewer, Christina. <laughs> I can tell that she is an academic. Yeah, she talks yeah. like one. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those words loved are. loved it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I'm way into it. Some of those words are words you didn't know what they meant. Excuse me. Is that what you mean? Well, no, but. Oh, did you mean something else? true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, first of all, we, we took some clips out of context from a longer interview. So she maybe did explain what hypothalamus and thalamus were earlier. Right. So don't hold yeah. that against her. You you check the episode. <laughs> check the full the full clip. I thought it was interesting that we kind of came full circle a bit there at the end with her on purity, which we were talking oh, earlier yeah. about yep. Trump and, and sort of puritanism on either side. And I think that Jesus really challenges puritanical impulses amongst conservatives and liberals. He hangs out with exactly the person you're not supposed to be hanging out with. Right. So the Roman tax collector is the, uh, I don't know, the money-making kind of corrupt cop kind of figure. And then, of course, he hangs out with prostitutes and, and the people. Unclean. Yeah, the unclean, right? Yeah. In, in various ways. And I have to let Jesus challenge my notions of cleanliness and, and who I will associate with and, and whose ideas I will consider and, you know, all that stuff, which is kind of convicting honestly yeah, i uh, a couple of days ago i had a moment of weakness on my instagram and i posted something political and i i said something like you know trump would think jesus was a terrorist that's great uh, not my Good best idea. <laughs> and i meant that because jesus is brown and middle eastern right. and yeah. progressive and mostly good feedback from that but one of my conservative friends uh, sent a message to me and she said lol you're such a hippie <laughs> I just love that I, I well, just love good. that I'm a hippie I didn't know that I was a hippie by thinking that like that, that might just be her definition of hippie is a little different than the standardized one <laughs> or maybe she was one. trying to not rage on me yeah maybe she was trying cool. to engage the rage <laughs> and keep it <laughs> keep it cool yeah. with you uh, I don't know there's a lot in that stuff with Christina that I think is amazing. I mean, I liked what she said about how we don't have a problem with immigrants unless they like challenge our customs. Yeah. yeah. Challenge our customs. I love that. Yeah. Um, I was in a, another non proud moment yesterday. I was in the McDonald's drive through and the lady in front of me, you know, had gotten her order and drove, started to drive away and then slammed on the brakes, slammed on her horn reverse and started yelling into the the window hmm. and I was like hey 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 I this is not what I ordered blah, blah blah and finally some younger white guy comes to the window and he's like oh sorry what's going on and she's she says like well everybody else is speaking Spanish and doesn't know what's going on and it was one of those moments where I was like I need to have my phone out because this is those video. This is like one of those videos you that could, go, vi could go viral. viral. Yeah. I could be that lady saying, "Hey, why do you think you're better than these people?" And I'm so your sorry. Your first thought was you could be the moralizing viral <laughs> no, video. That was my taker. first thought. My first thought was like, 
Why do you yeah. think that you have so much more value than the people that are working their asses off trying to get you right. all of your, you know, yeah. weird, like who asks for a cheeseburger without pickles kind of thing? We're at McDonald's. Yeah, you know, well, I do because I ordered the keto keto stuff. But uh, <laughs> let's not talk about not that. Real. I'm not going to turn into a podcast diet guy. I had an experience. Jeffrey and I were on a flight. And uh, we were actually, it was a short flight in Europe. So it was not a flight in the States. We were flying from one Norwegian city to another. We were there for a wedding. And I was sitting next to this Middle Eastern man, maybe sort of like North African, Ethiopian, somewhere. A brown person. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying culturally somewhere from, somewhere between Turkey and Ethiopia. Okay. And uh, he was sitting next to me and then the three seats behind us were his wife and two their two kids. And the kids were going crazy. Like annoying for Yeah, for going, two for the whole oh, two hours of the flight. It was a short so flight. Much. And he was just sitting there and like drinking his drink and whatever. And I was like, I I had to think about this a lot. Cause I was like, okay, obviously we have a cultural shift here. There's a cultural you, difference. Yeah. Yep. He either, I don't know, but he either does not think it's a problem or he would not, so it would be embarrassing for him to be a part of solving that or problem. Or maybe he's a stay-at-home dad and that was his only break. It's possible, yeah. That's what I, I'm going That's, for option it's possible. Three. You know, or there, you know, whatever, whatever it was, but I was, it was really, it was hard because like, it was not that big of a deal for me. I have noise canceling headphones, like it was a short flight. It was fine. But I was like, dude, I... I'm afraid that you just got ten more people to vote oh. for the to vote for the nativist party. It's so funny that time. that's where your mind goes. But, well, yeah, I mean, I think about this stuff, but it's yeah. it's true. I think like that is the stuff that people go. Ah, I'm let's let's limit that. Yeah. Where and and I wonder if that's education. Is that like like for his sake, for his family's sake? I wish that he had been like, hey guys, shut up. Like we're on a plane in a Western nation where people are quiet on planes and like it would my kid's not quiet on planes. well you're you have a baby these these kids were like six eight oh, nine years no. old no, they were no, not no, babies no. okay yeah They're, they no were good. just being you know kicking our seats kind of and like not being loud cool. yeah and i just it's like oh this is exactly the kind of situation that like leads to anti-immigrant movements yeah that being said there's more than enough white American people that are not parenting their kids. Well, yeah, but you just but, don't, you don't, you, your cause and effect is different. Yeah, yeah. So if we it's don't a look white at them person. And say like, who are you voting for? I'm not going to vote for, for whoever no, you're voting you just for. Be like, yeah. or, or in my darker moments, I'd be like, oh, this like poor white trash family can't keep their crap together. Yeah. But if it's, if it's obviously someone who's not born in America or whatever, then that's the thing I will assume. Oh, it's because they're Arab right. or what? You know what I mean? It's like, that's just where your brain goes. Yeah, which is maybe beneficial in a way because at least we don't look at them and think, you shit bag. Like we would. <laughs> sure. If you were sitting next to a white guy. I was less guy, judgmental. Yeah. I was less judgmental of him. That is true. Yeah, so you didn't, yeah. you, it, it, which is actually kind of refreshing because you didn't think like this guy is just a bad guy. And you thought, well, this must be just sort of like how. Wouldn't it be funny if like it, there was no cultural reason and he was just a total dick? <laughs> He might have been a dick. He's just a dick. And that and there's no nothing about where he's from that yeah. like that they do that. He just was a, is a total But I love ass. that you wrestled yeah. with that for a while probably. I thought about it for a while, yeah. It kind of ruined half of my day 
because, well, I, you know whenever. what I bet whose day I bet was really ruined the mom. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> or maybe woman. every day of her life is ruined. I don't know. Well, we, the reason I was thinking about it, cause we had been talking with some of these Norwegians about politics and about this kind of stuff. And so it was kind of on my mind. And I was like, and that's how it happens right there. That's yeah. that's how you get those yep. voters. Anyway, Ellen, thank you for a great episode. Always was appreciate your voice and time. Dan, you're my, you're my biggest fan. So next <laughs> next week, we're not going to go Tribalism Part 2. Tribalism Part 2 is going to come in a few weeks. But when we do, we're going to hear from some of the voters that we interviewed last season. Oh, that'll be fun. We're going to hear from Joy. We're going to hear from Jason and Justin. And Jason has a master's in education from Harvard, and Justin runs political campaigns. So we're going to hear yeah, them that's gonna be good. from them on that side of their their expertise. And we're also going to spend some time with uh, John Foreman from Switchfoot. His dad is a pastor, and the habits that his dad had in terms of the greater California community have shaped the way that he thinks about tribalism and, and how he's raising his own kids. We have links to Donna, Michael, and Christina's work and faculty pages in the show notes. Remember, Patreon, you get two bonus episodes per month. Patreon.com slash depolarize. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we're still waiting from Ellen on that Virgin of Guadalupe, but that episode is going to come soon. And there's a Facebook discussion group. If you just look for Depolarize Podcast in the Facebook app and shoot me an email depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com and let me know especially what kind of discussions you'd be interested in hearing on those patron-only episodes because the topic list is wide open. Ellen, have a blessed evening. In his, what what do they say? In his hands. In his hands. Praise be. Jeez. He did a pretty good job with North Korea or I don't know if you have you think he accomplished something with uh You're really trying to find some taxes or No, I want, uh, let me take that again cuz I know that there's things that people give him credit for. Um uh, <laughs> <laughs> How about uh tar- tariffs? Some people are really pumped on the tariffs. Some people are, other people think it's a trade uh, war. I mean, I I don't know. Seriously, all we have is North Korea? (laughs) No. He's done a lot of things that people who... Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is for the end. But next week, I believe we are going to be hearing from... Someone else with a J name. (laughs) Uh, Take that out. I don't know. I'm not sure what... We I'm not sure no which episode is next week. I'm not sure which which episode is next week. Uh, it's going to be the one after the election, so that'll be interesting. After midterms? Oh no, it won't be. It'll be it'll be the one before next week. Fart. <laughs>